Okay, welcome back. We're going to go ahead and get started. Our next talk is given by Dr. Melanie Thompson, who everyone in Atlanta and the region knows. Melanie is the founder of the AIDS Research Consortium of Atlanta, ARCA. She has been chair of the ISUSA antiretroviral therapy guidelines in the past. She's still on the committee. Um, today, she's going to pull a Bill Maher in a way. Instead of talking about new rules, she's going to talk about new drugs. And her focus is going to be specifically on long-acting agents. So, Melanie, welcome back. Thank you, Mike. I'm really excited to present some uh, data on new drugs and development. Here are my financial disclosures and learning objectives are in your packet. And here's the menu for today's talk. So the good news is that we have a robust pipeline and also that I'm not going to talk about every single one of these drugs. Uh, but I am going to highlight uh, six or seven of them as we go along just the broad overview here. And I think one of the most anticipated uh, findings has been data from Flair and Atlas on long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine. So we're going to spend a good bit of time on that. So here is the punchline. You can leave after this slide if you want. Um, monthly cabotegravir and relpivirine long-acting are non-inferior to dolutegravir, bacavir 3TC in naive patients, and combination antiretrovirals for maintenance of viral suppression. Uh, safety profile looked pretty good. There were low rates of virologic failure, but concerningly, there was emergence of treat, uh, treatment emergent resistance mutations for both NNRTIs and NSTs, and we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, there were a lot of injection site reactions, mostly mild, and patient satisfaction was high in both of these studies. And I just want to mention that there is a limited expanded access program, but only for people who cannot take pills. All right, so here are the study designs for these two studies. FLARE is the so-called naive study, but I want you to remember that in this study, patients went on dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC, oral, for about 20 weeks until they achieved viral suppression. So they did not go directly on injectable medication. And then after that, they were randomized to stay on that treatment or to go on cabotegravir and rilpivirine orally for one month lead-in and then transition to intramuscular monthly injections uh, with cab and rilpivirine. And then ATLAS is the suppression of viral, uh, the maintenance of viral suppression study in which everybody was virally suppressed. They were randomized to stay on their therapy or to begin that one month oral lead in with oral cab and rilpivirine and then transition to uh, injectable drugs. And I want to point out that there is an extension, but also transition to another study that will look at monthly versus every two month injections uh, of these drugs. So we're going to be looking at the 48 week data. I want to point out in terms of baseline characteristics. They did a pretty good job of enrolling women, 20 to 30, 22 to 33%, but they did a not very good job of enrolling African Americans. 
I think this is problematic, but particularly here in the South, when that is where the majority of our epidemic lies. We need a lot more information. Okay, the adverse events were pretty unremarkable across the board. Drug-related adverse events were more common in the ATLAS study, so that was the maintenance of viral suppression study, um, in the injectable arms, but really there was no difference in the adverse events leading to withdrawal. And here's the money slide for virologic suppression. Low rates of virologic non-response in the 2% ballpark and high rates of virologic response, 93% in both arms in the FLARE study, and both of these met non-inferiority endpoints. In ATLAS, now virologic non-response here actually means virologic failure, and the high rates of viral suppression really means continued virologic suppression. So, in, in this study as well, the primary and secondary endpoints for non-inferiority were met. So let's look at these confirmed virologic failures. The first point I would make is that there was a very low level of viremia at the time of virologic failure in the, in the FLARE study in particular. And then you can see in the red mutations that were treatment emergent, both for NNRTIs and for NSTs. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that at baseline, there was an L41I mutation, both in the FLARE and in the ATLAS studies in three patients and in two patients. These were all uh, either A or A1 subtypes, and they were all in Russia. So it's unclear what this means. Only Robert Mueller knows. <laughs> and that's why everybody wants him to release the report. I'm sure that's it. So what about the practical implications? So you know, I've given you the top line data here. But what will it mean to us as providers to administer these drugs? So I want to point out that the loading dose is four injections, followed by two injections uh, at each monthly follow-up. You're going to need a private space to do this, because this is not a flu shot in the arm. It's in the gluteus medius. And there will be extra training required, because there is sort of a Z-tracking mechanism of administration. It's not hard, but it requires a little more training. The other thing is this has not been tested in persons who have buttock implants. And that is common in our trans patients. So we really, uh, they, they were not allowed in the studies. Um, we're going to have to look at staffing for retention. How do we get patients to come back every month to get these injections? Some are talking about alternate delivery systems like pharmacies, home health, mobile units. And just remember that running out of pills is actually a strong reminder for patients to come back to visits, and we're not going to have that trigger. Let's also think about the cost implications. How will these drugs be priced? We simply don't know. And who is going to purchase the drugs? Will it be the patient going to a pharmacy, or will the provider in the clinic have to purchase the drugs? Are we going to just have them around for patients who aren't keeping their appointments but may drop in? 
Remember that copay cards don't actually cover drugs that are purchased by and administered in a clinic. So that's a different paradigm. Will reimbursement cover the drug costs? We have a cautionary tale with benzathine penicillin in which, in many cases, reimbursement is less than the cost of the drug, and some people actually are not stocking benzathine penicillin in their clinics anymore because of that. Will the administration cost be reimbursed? We don't know. And the bigger picture is what will be the impact on ADAP and health system costs as a whole. We have to start thinking about that. In the Eclair study, 17% of individuals on this study had detectable but low levels of cabotegravir at 52 weeks after the last injection. So very long, low levels, and the question is, will we see INSTE and NNRTI resistance for those who are not going to return to treatment on a regular schedule? How are we going to manage treatment emergent drug-related toxicities if there are any? How will we manage drug interactions, including for people who may develop TB? And then what about teratogenicity, we're concerned about neural tube defects with dolutegravir. There's no such signal with cabotegravir yet, but we're not using cabotegravir. So uh, we have a lot of, of questions. And my question to you, go ahead and vote. I really want to know, for what proportion of your patients would you prescribe this regimen? Cab LA, Rapivirine LA. So are you going to say, yeah, I'm interested, but, you know, I'm just not there yet. All the way up to everybody gets this therapy. It is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm all in. Uh, and then I'm going to give you an out. It totally depends on the logistics and the reimbursement, not so much the virologic potency. So let's see what everybody says. Okay, interesting. So there are a few people who are just not quite buying it yet. Uh, so really, two-thirds of people would say less than 10% of their patients. And then the 14% the of you who are entirely practical uh, looking at the logistics and reimbursement. OK, so don't put your phones away. Here's another question. What is your primary concern about these drugs, given that two-thirds of you were not really on the bandwagon yet? Patients won't come back for visits, toxicity management, pregnancy, potential teratogenicity, out-of-pocket costs, logistics. I don't have any concerns. Bring it on. All right. Okay, so there's a majority of people who are concerned about people coming back from visits and then uh, a, a little more concern about the costs and logistics. Okay, so let's talk about another long-acting, potentially long-acting drug in a new class. MK8591 is a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. Now, this drug blocks translocation and also terminates the DNA chain immediately and in a delayed manner. You may have heard of it before as EFDA. 
Uh, it's a very potent drug. So potentially at about a 0.25 milligram dose, we could see um, efficacy for treatment. It has a very long half-life of uh, up to 128 hours. And in a single-dose study, the triphosphate levels were above the pharmacokinetic target for over 30 hours following the last oral dose. So at CROI, we got more information about this drug in terms of its activity against um, resistant viruses. And it turns out that MK8591 has a higher inhibitory quotient, or IQ, um, than FTC, 3TC, TAF, or TDF. Now remember the IQ is the trough concentration divided by the IC50, so it's going to tell us how active this drug is. And here is a plot of different NRTI resistance mutations at the bottom in black and the effectiveness or the inhibitory quotient of the different drugs. And so MK8591 at those very low doses is right at the top, the most um, active, and then TAF, and then 3TC and TDF. So we have uh, the highest inhibitory quotient against wild type, but also resistant viruses. And interestingly enough, this is now being looked at in drug-eluting implants, where in a rodent model, the triphosphate levels were therapeutic or potentially therapeutic for over six months. So this is an entirely different way to think about drug delivery. Uh, in general, this is a very potent drug, very active against resistant viruses, has a high genetic barrier to resistance, a long intracellular half-life. They're looking at weekly oral dosing or uh, long-acting parenteral dosing. And it is being developed simultaneously for treatment and prevention. And uh, in oral dosing, it is now going to be going into studies in combination with Duravarine. No surprise. Okay, so Fostemzivir is the first-in-class attachment inhibitor. It's been in the pipeline for a while. Hopefully, it will escape the pipeline eventually. But I want to give you the um, final data from the Phase two study. First, I'll remind you, Fostemzivir is the prodrug of Temsevir. Temsevir binds to the virus at GP120. It causes a conformational change, and it prevents... Uh, the virus from binding to the CD4 receptor. And I was really going for the most busy slide of the conference with this. Um, and uh, so I just want you to see this study's been going on a long time. We're going to look at the longer-term follow-up, so I'm going to make this easier to look at. Um, so there were four doses of Fostemsevir studied, and they were compared with atazanavir, ritonavir, and then all of the arms were on the background of raltegravir and TDF. And so here are the virologic responses. This is an as-treated analysis out to 192 weeks. And you can see the atazanavir line in yellow, which of course is appropriate. Um, and then you have uh, the black line showing the severe response. So you can see that for those um, patients who remained on study, they did very well, 90% viral suppression. To keep us intellectually honest, I wanted to put the intention to treat results out there in red. So in general, uh, severe 
had virologic response and CD4 response that was comparable to boosted atazanavir with raltegravir and TDF. And there were fewer safety events uh, in the Fustem severe arms, really no signature safety events at all. Uh, and these were treatment experience patients, but actually um, not as much as the highly treatment experienced patients who are in an ongoing phase three study. And in this study, these patients will be dosed, uh, are being dosed twice daily. And that's what we can expect from this drug. So let's go to um, the youngest whippersnapper here in phase one. Uh, this is GS9207. It is the first capsid inhibitor that is moving forward. So the capsid inhibitors are interesting. They interact with the viral life cycle in several places. So in the early stage, they interrupt capsid disassembly and transport to the nucleus of viral material. They interrupt virus production, and they interfere with the uh, GAG and GAG-PAL capsid uh, um, precursors to interrupt the capsid assembly on the other side of the life cycle. And so in this healthy volunteer study, a single dose subcutaneous 6207 was given, and this is the PK profile. So what you see in that red box is that the highest three doses were all above the PK target at 12 weeks. So not 12 days, but 12 weeks. And you can see they go on out to 24 weeks, with some doses still being above the PK target. So in summary, this is a very potent antiviral. Um, they are looking at uh, subcutaneous dosing. Um, I'll say there are no serious safety issues, and safety remains blinded in this study. So they are looking at a potential for quarterly or less frequent dosing with sub-Q injection. And there is now an ongoing phase one study in people living with HIV. So let's catch up a little bit on Pro-140. Those of you who have been around for a while know that this drug uh, has... Uh, has been revived and is now being studied again. Um, it is a monoclonal antibody that is directed against the CCR5 inhibitor. Uh, I'm sorry, the CCR5 receptor, and it blocks viral entry by blocking that receptor. So, so you have to have a CCR5 tropic virus for this to work. It's being given in weekly subcutaneous injections. It has activity against resistant viruses, including those that are resistant to Maraviroc. And their treatment experience study patient was um, uh, reported on last year. The um, primary endpoint was only a half log or greater drop in viral load uh, after one week of functional monotherapy, and they did meet that bar, and the company says they plan to file for approval uh, at the end of this year in their press release. This is their monotherapy maintenance of viral suppression study, which is still going on, still enrolling here in Atlanta, I might add. Um, the um, patients on this study had suppressed virus, and then they were randomized to different doses. Um, and they stopped their oral therapy after being on treatment for a couple of weeks. 
Um, the lowest dose resulted in too many virologic failures, and now the two highest doses are being continued. So enrollment would continue um, for a while here. I just want to give you a word about the um, GSK maturation inhibitor that was reported on at Croy. And to remind us that maturation inhibitors act toward the end of the viral life cycle, and they bind to the GAG protein, uh, and, and they stop that last chop of the protease, and they keep the virus from making a mature virion. It's been tough to develop these drugs. Uh, they, some of the earlier precursors have had problems with resistance or tolerability. And this is a 10-day monotherapy study. And in this study, the drug is boosted with cobicistat in order to be given once a day. And you can see from uh, the plot and also from the graph that the top three doses actually had a lot of potency, uh, especially the 200 milligram dose, a 1.7 log drop uh, as monotherapy over 10 days. So um, this is interesting. Uh, unfortunately, using the, having to use cobacistat for boosting is not really a modern way to go about treatment. Uh, and also, there were a couple of patients with treatment-emergent uh, GAG mutations. So it appears that this drug probably won't go anywhere, but the good news is there are other maturation inhibitors right behind it. So I can't um, not mention the, the most exciting class, one of the most exciting classes, I will say, um, the broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. These are being looked at for prevention, for treatment, and for cure. And so you're going to hear more about these as we go through the day. Um, maybe one of the salient issues is whether to capitalize the N in BNAB. Um, you can read Paul Sachs's blog about that. It seems to vary according to which scientist is writing the paper, which company owns the drugs, the antibodies. So this is a study that was um, reported on last year. It is a combination BNAB study. So 3BNC117 was used with 101074, and they were given to virally suppressed um, people living with HIV at three-week intervals for three infusions. And in this small study, which was a proof-of-concept type study, out of 11 patients, nine of them maintained their viral load below 200 copies with a to a median of 21 weeks. So uh, well-tolerated, no safety issues, and a very long, um, a long activity. So, you know, you will hear more about these as we go along. So I want to just sum a few questions about these long-acting agents, and we can maybe talk more about this in the Q&A. How long is long enough? And how long is too long? So we need to think about resistance and toxicity, teratogenicity, what is the optimal way to administer these agents? And there may not be one answer to this. We may have a menu of choices, but subcutaneous, IM, IV, implant stent, microneedle patch, there are many, many different mechanisms that are going to be studied. 
What about self-administered drugs versus provider-administered drugs? For clinic-administered therapy, what will be the impact on the patient flow and the provider time if drugs need to be administered in the clinic? What will the drugs cost? And will the cost of administration be reimbursed? What will be the impact on healthcare financing as a whole? And finally, will these compounds solve our adherence issues, or will they just reinvent them in a different way? So I think these are, are interesting questions, and I'd be curious in the Q&A to hear what you have to think about these. And I would submit to you, just to keep us grounded in all of this excitement about long-acting therapy, that really the half-life just doesn't matter unless it gets into the patient. And this is where we are. So in our epidemic here in America, half of people living with HIV are not currently in care. Half are not virally suppressed. So to the extent that long-acting agents may help us improve our care continuum, they could be transformative. But I also want to pose another question to you. If we are successful in getting half of our HIV population back into care, who's going to take care of them? Could you double your population of people living with HIV in your practice, in your clinic? What would that take? Because that's really what we're talking about in terms of ending the epidemic and, cure, and fixing this care continuum. And so I want to use that to step up on my big soapbox here and go back to something Jeff talked about. There is a federal ending the epidemic initiative that was presented in the State of the Union that is now uh, in budgetary form before Congress, proposing $291 million to kick off this, uh, this initiative. And what I would like to say is that everyone in this room has a unique opportunity to make this happen. So thoughts and prayers are not enough. As healthcare providers, we have a unique voice. Policymakers want to hear from us. And to the extent we do not lend our voices, we are fueling the epidemic. So I'm going to make an ask today. I'm going to ask that everyone in this room make three phone calls. Call your congressperson, call your two senators, and tell them that you are working in HIV, trying to end this epidemic, and you need them to fully fund the White House's budget for ending the HIV epidemic, because this is not a done deal. The second thing I hope you will tell them is that they need to say no to budget proposals that cut a trillion dollars out of Medicaid, which takes care of 40% of people living with HIV in America, and almost a trillion dollars for Medicare, which takes care of our people living with HIV who are aging, as well as a few of us, and cuts 11% from the NIH budget, 
and cuts a billion dollars from PEPFAR and cuts housing money. So I think these are things we need to weigh in on. We need to say no. If these things come to, to, to fruition, they will fuel this epidemic and it will be out of control once again. And the third thing I'd like for you to ask is that, or educate your legislators, that we will not end the HIV epidemic with stigmatizing and discriminating policies. And we see too much from this administration uh, that stigmatizes the very people we are trying to help, the very people we are trying to get in care and keep in care. And we know that stigma kills our people. But we need to voice this to our legislators because otherwise they're just gonna go along in la-la land and, and we need to push them. So I really am, am taking the bully pulpit and asking for people to really use your voices, find your activist voice because our job is not done when we walk out of the exam room. And there is an opportunity to end this epidemic but it is going to take all of us working together and using our voices. So thank you very much, and I want to thank everyone who participated in clinical trials and who shared slides. Under 30 minutes, even with activism. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'd like to lead off the questioning and thank you again for encouraging everybody to take a personal intervention to try and make this happen, mm -hmm. the things that you said. With the um, capsid inhibitor, given its sub-Q administration and long half-life, it looks like it could be a potential PrEP candidate. Do you know if Gilead, I know they've got other drugs that they want us to use for PrEP, but have they looked in animal models to see if it might be feasible? I think they think that all avenues are open with this drug. They, they've had a bunch of capsid inhibitors, and some have fallen by the wayside, and this is the one that seems like it's most likely to go forward. So um, I think they're very interested in, in all applications. Okay. Um, if people can come to the microphones if they have questions or send their other questions forward. The question, obviously, about the um, maturation inhibitor you know, they indicated at the meeting that they think it'll be active against the polymorphisms that mm -hmm. kill Bavirimat. Um, Bavirimat also had a lot of manufacturing issues. How about yeah. this new maturation inhibitor? Are they running into any of the similar problems? I don't think that that is going to be the biggest issue. Um, Bavirimat, uh, some of you may remember from ancient HIV history, um, we actually studied because it was the first maturation inhibitor. And there were many polymorphisms that turned out to be significant, and it looked like you were going to have to have some sort of a, um, a genotype for polymorphisms in order to even give the drug. So I think a lot of the focus has been on finding drug candidates that will overcome that. 
Um, it's a little bothersome that this particular uh, maturation inhibitor did find some treatment emergent um, mutations and maybe one virus that was not so sensitive at baseline to this drug, but you know, it's a small study. So, so I don't think it's going to be the manufacturing so much, but I, I think it's going to be the, the virologic activity and efficacy. And also, you know, um, everyone is turning to long-acting drugs. When you talk with each one of the companies, they're really putting a lot of emphasis on long-acting drugs. And so, you know, the maturation inhibitors um, have a lot of potential for treatment-resistant uh, uh, viruses and so on. So we'll see where these kind of drugs end up in terms of, of that. But there are other maturation inhibitors, I think, that they're looking forward to beyond this one. Any questions from the audience? I hate to dominate the discussion. Or, or comments. I'd love yeah. to hear your comments about, uh, you know, these long-acting agents, because, you know, some of them are going to be in our clinics, I suspect, pretty soon. I do not have a question, but I have a couple of uh, comments. I guess you made a lot of questions during your presentation. Yeah. And I think those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves for every drug that we are going to put in the pipeline or in front of a patient, if what is the safety net of that medication. And I think that as long as we develop more medications, to control the viral load, that we are just looking for niches of patients that are looking for different options. Mm -hmm. It is a dynamic uh, group that wants uh, a one pill or a strong pill or something that doesn't interact with my medications or something that you know, goes with my lifestyle that you know, it goes uh, for a month. You're absolutely right. It may not work for somebody that is going to become pregnant or that is going to interact with other medications, but it will work with that young, otherwise healthy, you know, patient that works in an airline that travels, you know, the world. So I think mm -hmm. it's just looking niches for different groups of people that live with HIV. So I think that it's refreshing to see that there are other agents other than, you know, shifting the pie of who gets more money on the, on, on the medication, uh, on the pharmaceutical world. But I think that it's for different groups. It doesn't, I, I agree with you that it doesn't bring anything new uh, if you're gonna be a one pill other than, you know, what a triple brought or, or, or any of the one pill medications. But I think that these are other options for some patients. And as you saw, not everybody thinks that it's gonna be you know, for everybody or for one group. It's, it's just a diversity for, for those. The other thing is, I have asked the question that you ask about, you know, are we going to be ready if we really know all these new patients? I asked that to my medical director a couple of years ago when I was trying to get uh, universal testing for HIV in our main hospital in the city. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, hey, are, are, are we ready to, to unveil this? You know, do we have enough people? We always struggle with, with providers in HIV in the Southeast area. Uh -huh. Yes, we do. And, 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 and she told me, she didn't hesitate. She told me, yes, we are. 
and the truth is that I mean she didn't have she didn't have the people that is is the is the is the, the 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 heart of wanting to help. But I was, it was very interesting to hear one of the Croy uh, papers that you just presented about using you know nurses to follow up you know viral loads on C4s you know. And you, true, it's not rocket science to treat HIV. You take your treatment, and if you don't have interactions, you know, and, and your C4 is good, mm -hmm. you know, and viral load is undetectable, you're in cruise control. <laughs> so maybe with that, we have to shift. How is that we need? Do you really need a, a highly trained infectious diseases to treat, you know, to, hey, how is the viral load? Right, and it, it may be that we'll have mm -hmm. to change models if we double the number of people in care where we'll be doing one in-person visit per two years and the rest telemedicine. And you know, use other, other yeah. you know, healthcare providers. Yeah. Right. Or, to, yeah. And that's something that we need to develop, you right. know, at the part. But I think that the yeah. only way that we will get where we need to be okay. is by, by getting that Right, okay. and there, there's been a lot of work on task shifting, mainly in resource-limited settings, but right. i got to say, you know, uh, in the South, we have a lot of resource-limited yeah, settings. We're we, a, a pseudo-resource-limited setting. We, we yeah. absolutely are, so... Uh, Dr. Vernon, you had a question? Andy, I didn't yes. even talk about TB except yeah. once, so... It's not a TB. Sorry. <laughs> I have a question about the time courses with which... Two, two questions. One is about the time courses with which your resistance appears. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about the slow decline in the levels of these long-acting drugs and the rise in levels of virus. Mm -hmm. um, when does resistance develop in that context? And when's the point, what's the point that companies need to be looking at to see if their product and its long-acting characteristic is, create, is creating resistance, yeah. allowing resistance to develop, do we know that? And then the second question is, uh, thinking about the toxicity issue, are companies working on d developing implants that are easily removable? Because obviously, an injectable you can't pull out very easily. But if it's an implant, theoretically, if it's if it's engineered right, it couldn't. It wouldn't be very hard. Oh, you're having toxicity. Well, we'll just take it out. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the interesting things about implants, and and it does. Uh, you know, Merck actually. Uh, manufactures other drugs and implants, and so they do have a lot of technology to draw on for being able to remove an implant. There are also some implants that are kind of, you know, that degrade over time and you can't actually take them out. So I, I think there are a lot of different mechanisms there. But your question about resistance I think is really interesting, Andy, and I, I think there's so much more to learn about this, because basically all we have are these clinical trials right now, and that's not a real-world setting. but. Um, if you looked at the virologic failures in the slide that I showed, uh, they, some of them occurred relatively early, so eight weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, um, and some, I think the latest one in that, in that particular analysis was at 48 weeks, but this is only a 48-week analysis. So I think one thing is it's very important that these drugs be followed for the longer term. Um, 
And so the first point is that resistance can occur, occur early, which raises the question of how frequently will we be checking viral loads in these patients? Will it be the same standard that we currently have for oral drugs, uh, which is, you know, with um, decreasing frequency once we see that people are suppressed and, right. and so on? And then the other question is, the other issue is, you know, it's the people who don't come back who have those very long uh, tails of pharmacokinetics, and that's going to be harder to and study. And then the question is, do you give them a package and say, if you decide not to come back, take this medicine for a month after you don't come back? I mean, there's all yeah. these questions. And, and in the studies, they used oral bridging for people yeah. who were going to miss a dose. Right. Yeah. Let's go to the back microphone. Hi, Elliot Raises from CDC. So, um, I do have my foot in two different resources, Linda, and uh, Melanie, like you said. And I yes. think that um, one thing I'm wondering, and you kind of alluded to it in answering Andy's question, is about the, the limitations of the clinical trials. And I wonder if this is a particular innovation that really needs sort of non-drug company-sponsored implementation science, real-world you know, trials um, that, that aren't just about getting it to the F in front of the FDA, but more, are more about um, letting practitioners in this room understand what is the best uh, population to apply this to. And I think that's especially uh, relevant in regards to the, your end, the end of your talk regarding the, how we end AIDS in this country, so to speak. And I, think that, um, and, and I think that probably there is a subpopulation that's not getting, that's not suppressed, that will very much benefit from this. But we don't know what that subpopulation is, and I'm not sure clinical trials will give it. Drug trials, drug company-sponsored trials will give us that. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think many of us have clamored for years for implementation science research. We know a lot of stuff. We just don't know how, know how to implement what we know effectively. And we were actually talking with the director of the OAR recently about the research agenda, and one of the things that came up was implementation science around these long-acting agents, because it really is going to take something other than formal clinical trials to figure out how to use them most Especially effectively. Especially in the seven rural states that they're going to be targeting. Yeah. Could these long-acting agents play a role? Yes? Hi, Jamel Young from Medical Advocacy and Outreach. I'm a pharmacist. Awesome. Um, prior to working in this field, I was a retail pharmacist. So when you were talking about the Caltech of Air, LA, the interesting thing that kind of hit me was if insurance doesn't pay for it, or if the clinic pays for it, and you don't get reimbursed, or you can't use like a copay card, you know, that's gonna be high cost. However, if insurance decides to pay for it, and they don't get it at the clinic, mm -hmm. they're gonna have to come <coughs> to the pharmacy, right. pick it up, take it back either to the clinic or what usually is going to happen is going to follow on the pharmacist. There you go. At the retail level. Mm -hmm. And if it's given in the gluteus maximus, I'm going to be honest with you, that might not happen. Especially if it's something <laughs> like Z-Track. We don't even know what Z-Track is. And, and Most people it's don't. It's a kind of sport utility and, and vehicle. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so to, you get one free with every cab recovering really prescription. And I really want people to consider that part. Yeah. Because, you know, to yeah. end the epidemic, 
you actually have to get the medication. Again, mm -hmm. implementation, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and I really do think, and thank you for being here today, I think we underutilize our pharmacists. Pharmacists are such important players in this epidemic, and we really could make so much more and use of good pharmacists. in the rural areas, pharmacists yeah. outnumber providers, and so there's many counties in Georgia that have zero physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs, mm -hmm. but most of them have a pharmacist. So. Right. right. Usually what happens when they pick it up at yeah. the pharmacy will go, well, so, can't get it to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's going to create a whole... The questions on the cards we've all addressed except for one. Somebody wants your best prediction of when we're going to have Cab LA and Rilpivirine injectable available for prescription. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see some action by the end of the year. We'll see. Okay. All right. We'll see by the end of the year. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Very Thank nice you. talk. Um,